welcome everyone to the 11th WEM Academy live session on humanitarian careers uh, by hearing from our panel of specialists uh, that are here today. So my name is Owen Walker, I'm the WEM Trauma Lead and Critical Care Paramedic. So today I'm joined by Josie Gilday. Josie is a Global Medical Advisor for Save the Children International. Uh, she's a qualified nurse with an MSc in public health in developing countries. She's previously worked as a health advisor for West Central Africa for the British Red Cross and spent over five years with Medicine Sans Frontieres in the field. She's also worked in several, several countries, including Haiti, uh, the Ivory Coast, Ethiopia, Myanmar, DRC and South Sudan. Uh, she also holds various positions, including setting up and managing pediatric and adult uh, primary and secondary health facilities, proposing and developing nurse training programs, con contributing to MSF's non-communicable disease guidelines, amongst many other endeavours. Welcome, Josie. Thanks, Owen. It's all right. It's a bit of a mouthful, but we got there. <laughs> I was like, ooh. <laughs> So my second panellist and guest is Erin Kilborn. Erin is an A&E registrar normally based in Scotland, currently working for MSF in Gaza. Amateur for MSF France, trauma, osteomyelitis and burns programme and is part of the team developing emergency response for COVID outbreak. Her previous missions with MSF have included working in a burns unit in Haiti, as well as medical lead for the medical team in the general hospital in, in Bangui, I said that right, caring, for uh, surgical trauma patients and victims of sexual violence and in Syria in 2017 in the emergency department in, north, in the north of the country's Kurdish territories. She's also worked as an exhibition medic with Raleigh and Borneo and with a group of artists and indigenous people in Peruvian Amazon. She's passionate about teaching and training, empowering local healthcare providers to provide high quality medical care to the best of their ability within the capacity of the resources they have. Welcome, Erin. Thank you. Hi. So I love the fact that you read out my little typo, which is amateur, which is meant to say medical activity manager, not medical activity ah! amateur. Although sometimes I definitely feel amateur. <laughs> uh, you're, you're certainly not. You're certainly cool. So in this session, guys, we're going to be we're going to be exploring um, a variety of topics, really, for humanitarian aid and how to get into humanitarian aid. So we're going to be asking the questions, um, what experience and or qualifications do you need to, to break into the domain? Um, what personal qualities you might need uh, and that are important for humanitarian work? And what resources that are available to us to, for, for you guys to upskill and or break into the domain? Um, how we fit and or not uh, humanitarian work around other clinical posts and family life? Um, where we stand with, uh, with medical indemnity? Um, some of the changing dynamics uh, due to COVID-19 and how that's changed the, the landscape in humanitarian aid. Uh, amongst many other questions. Um, so we're gonna, be, we're gonna be quizzing the panelists as we go. Good, right, so my first question um, to you guys as we, as, as we just focus on some questions. My first question is just gonna be to, uh, to Josie and then Erin, please feel free to, to answer afterwards. Um, so Josie, from your perspective, what do, you, what do you perceive to be a healthy baseline of experience um, or qualifications to start your human, humanitarian career? Um, well, I'm speaking mainly from a nursing background, but generally um, most humanitarian organisations ask for two years post-qualification. Um, they ask for um, specific specialisations, so PEDS, ED, um, surgical. I mean, you could probably get away with, with anything. I, I specialised in HIV. Um, the tropical nursing diploma at London or Liverpool is often a must, especially if you're 
going away with a UK NGO. Um, so that's that's definitely something to, to get involved in and one of the best courses I ever did. Um, and then really what's really important is, um, is kind of management, leadership, training skills. I think as nurses, we often don't think we're doing that, but we are. Um, and so it's about pulling those those kind of skills out of your day-to-day -day work and, and highlighting them because generally you're not clinical, you are management leadership and training, that's your role in the humanitarian sector. Um, know your weaknesses, as in, you know, I, I, I wasn't an ED nurse, so I did um, some minor injuries and minor illnesses courses before I left. Um, and I was a bit nervous about jumping straight into the humanitarian sector, so I did some expedition work um, with a company called Trekforce, but I think it's similar to Rally. And that just allowed me to gain my confidence in remote and resource limited settings. So that's, I suppose it's quite big. Oh, and the last thing, if you can get it languages, Arabic or French. Spanish, also good, but French and Arabic, you'll be snapped up. And Erin, from your perspective? Yeah, um, so it's, it's, I think it's probably one of the most common questions that people will ask um, trying to get into the area. Um, I would agree with Josie that having a baseline of several years of experience, I think for the medics, they generally want a little bit more. Mm. I would say that um, I'm trying to be generalized because I'm aware there's people not from the UK also tuning in. But if you're going to, if you've come fresh out of medical school and you do sort of two years of, sort of or an equivalent of junior rotations, you're probably not quite ready to go yet because you, you, you maybe think that you have done a little bit of everything, but you need to be really confident and self-assured that your clinical skills and your experience are up to the up to the mark when you know if you're going to be the only person who's going to be making serious decisions about patient care um, obviously there's a huge variety of different types of humanitarian work out there and you may not you may be part of a big team uh, which is a big advantage if it's your first mission especially because then you've got other people that you can rely on and who can help you out and there is access um, to things like telemedicine and, and sort of other expertise in the field when you go. But you could also be the only doctor in a very, very tiny uh, sort of bush-based outreach program doing primarily vaccination campaigns. But then, you know, if anybody really unwell comes your way, you're going to be the only one that has to decide what your management will be and, and how you're going to care for that person and whether or not you think you can do it there or do it elsewhere. So I would say that certainly for the UK system, do some form of core training or get a couple of years at least uh, under your belt, whether it's surgical, whether it's um, sort of the acute core stem, anesthetics, emergency medicine, um, acute medicine. But I think that um, at least getting a bit of emergency medicine experience, I did uh, about 18 months, two years before I, let, I went out on my first mission super helpful because it prepares you not just for the all sorts of eventualities but also just because you kind of learn to expect the unexpected now in a place like where i'm working currently we have a very strict protocol so we know what kinds of patients are going to come our way but even within that you can sometimes get things that pop up that are really surprising and you think huh how do i deal with that and i think working in an any department kind of gives you that kind of uh experience that 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 you know, to sort of be on your toes and then not kind of freak out when unexpected things come your way. The other thing, I would second Josie's languages thing, not, definitely not a prerequisite, but certainly a big help. Um, and definitely the tropical medicine course, very helpful. There are lots of others out there. So again, we are very UK centric, I think, when we talk about these things. I did mine in Belgium. Uh, it's taught in English and in French. 
um, in Antwerp's uh, in, um, Institute of Tropical Medicine, and it's super highly regarded, and it's an equivalent to the London and Liverpool courses. I think it might be a bit cheaper. Um, it certainly was when I did it. Um, but there's there's also uh, really great courses in Italy. There's also some good courses in Germany. Um, there's one in Thailand. There's actually one at the Humboldt uh, um, in Peru, I think, in Lima. So again, you know, it's there's lots of different options out there. But I think having having a bit of tropical medicine and understanding what to do with your sort of undifferentiated fevers in funky places in the world where there's lots and lots of different varieties of pathology that can come your way is pretty important. So you, at least you're not starting from absolute zero and you're having to reach for the books immediately. Absolutely. Absolutely. Also, so sorry, can I just, Owen, can I just plug MSF? They actually run an online course for, for doctors. It's not yet for nurses, but they do um, a global health and humanitarian medicine course. And it's actually online. It takes 11 months, so it takes some time. But people paying from developed countries subsidize those who want to do it from developing countries. Oh, yeah, that's right. So it's like, it's, mm. I think it's about £1,200 if you're in the UK. It's mm. 650 if you're doing it from outside the UK. I know this because I have five of my staff who've just applied and got um, granted access to the course from Gaza, which is awesome. The only yeah. thing is that you have to be able to go to London uh, or to, I think there's a few centres in India as well where they do the exams. So mobility, you do have to be able to move around. And this may change with COVID. Obviously, that's going to have an impact on the way we work generally. Um, but that's that's currently the setup. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it is a good course. Yeah. Fantastic. That's absolutely fantastic. So what, what I think what we'll do is try and provide a link to that to that course just so people can find it. And um, I'll try and do that shortly and, and put it in the chat box and or on Facebook as well, because that sounds fantastic. So we've panned, um, so Erin, we've panned um, and, and looked at um, some of the skill sets necessary for um, a, a doctor and or, or, or nurse um, so entering the field and some of the prerequisites. But sort of from a personal point of view, um, what would you, what do you perceive to be some of the personal qualities that you should and or would help you in, in the humanitarian domain? I think, again, Josie touched on it, but I think leadership skills are really important. A lot of the roles that you tend to have as an expat going into the field tend to be managerial positions. Not only, there are also very clinical ones. So especially if you're going as a specialist, let's say you're an anesthetist or you're a surgeon or you're a pediatrician, most of the time you will be there as a specialist. Um, I'm here as an A&E doctor, but not, that's not my role here. I'm the medical activity manager here. So I have a team of doctors who are very, very capable. I have some orthopedic surgeons who are local and I have an expat orthopedic surgeon sometimes. Um, and I have local anesthetists here. So my job here is mostly about managing the teams, managing the activities in the clinics. And I think that, uh, you know, you need to have a degree of flexibility and just really good people skills. Um, I think conflict management is one that's really important as well, because you can definitely, especially like within your own personal life circumstances within the expat community and the group that you live in, because you can be living in quite tough conditions where, um, you know, you're all on top of each other. You live, you work, you socialize together and, you know, things can get a bit tense sometimes. So just being able to sort of diffuse situations where you can feel tensions rising a bit. And also, you know, if you're in a war zone, it can, that can add to the tension. Or if you're kind of in a quarantine situation, that can add to the tension too. Of course it can. Um, so that, that, that's a big deal. And I think also just good communication. Um, so being able to really actively listen to people and, and ask questions and really engage people to kind of 
sometimes, especially in different cultures you work in, they're not necessarily going to come out and say things to you very directly. I'm as of Northern European stock. I am very direct and even sometimes makes British people a bit uncomfortable how direct I can be, which actually in an Arabic country like here, like being in the Palestinian territories, people are not very direct. And so they are not used to that. They, the, the staff we work with have, a, have become accustomed because they've been doing, MSF has been here for almost 20 years. But um, generally speaking, there's different ways of communicating and it's about, you know, levels of politeness and there's sort of people say things in a really roundabout way. So you have to kind of think, right, you've said this, but did you mean that? <laughs> so I think having, having that kind of understanding and, and sort of flexibility of mind to, to, to communicate is, is really important. And I could just add to that. I think, that, you know, the non-technical skills really do come out in these domains because you're mm -hmm. You're forced to be a generalist at times. Um, totally. Josie, from your perspective. Um, yeah, I think a lot like I bet everything that Erin said is completely correct. I think learning to roll with the punches, things change so rapidly. Um, and, and you've just you've probably just got this beautiful unit set up how you want it to. And, you know, a, a crisis happens or they say there's a hurricane coming in or there's an outbreak and you have to kind of start again from scratch and retrain all your staff on something completely different. And you're just like, ah, oh, I just got that, you know? And so rolling with the punches, going with the flow. Um, like I said before, I think knowing your weaknesses is key. Like when you get mm. stressed and what causes you to get stressed and how you deal with that stress. Um, because yeah, it is, there are, there are, like Erin said, the conflicts arise. And I mean, I remember I particularly lost it over an avocado at one point because someone ate a whole avocado to themselves and didn't share it. I mean, you know, outrageous. When, when you're 20 and you only have two avocados, for some reason it's a big deal, but it had nothing to do with the avocado. I was just stressed and hadn't, hadn't dealt with it. Um, and, and so then I learned how to, how to deal with it. So knowing that I think is really important. I think also knowing how to, how to really maximize your downtime as well is really part of that as well. You know, like you will be, often working really really long days back to back to back and you may not get a lot of opportunities to really kind of de-stress and I think this is something that's been really in the forefront of a lot of people's minds especially during this COVID thing um, back home but also here you know we've been talking to our staff as well because um, you know it's really important to take care of yourself in these scenarios so knowing kind of little things that might make you feel good like we have a it's silly things we have a stock of face masks and I know it sounds ridiculous but see on a Friday evening just being able to sit in my room and stick a face mask on and lie on my bed and listen to some calming music is just the best thing in the world. But you know, like understanding also when you get into that level of tired where you know that you're not going to be functional anymore and just say to people, look, I, I need to go and I need to only work a half day or I need a day off. There's nothing wrong in saying that or doing that because you are no use to anybody. If you are a total zombie or you're cracking up at every little thing or you're going to fight with people over avocados. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> because because you're not you're not you're not going to be you're not your work's not going to be good quality and it's going to have an impact as well on your relationship with your colleagues. Absolutely. So just just panning back a little bit and looking at some of the um, common themes of, of, of humanitarian aid around the potentially working in resource poor environments um, or certainly with um, different access to diagnostics that you might be used to within the NHS. Mm -hmm. Josie, from your perspective. So what, what have you learned from approaching the resource poor environments with this different differential sort of access to diagnostics and or treatment pathways and or and or clinical care? 
Yeah, I think uh, the first thing you realise is what a huge amount you can actually do with very little. Um, and, and actually you just bring it, you do bring it back to the basics and it, and I mean, I'm going to steal your saying here, but it is, it's about doing the basics well. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, common things are common. And so that's what you're looking for and at, and you do that in a clinical way. And MSF has wonderful clinical guidelines and a central drug list. And, mm -hmm. and you know, that's, that's what you need to be following. I think, um, you know, we say it's a resource limited setting, but it just means you have a bit less choice. So therefore you use what you have to your best ability and it still works exceptionally well. So I think I, you know, I still ran 110 bedded hospital with this kit, but you've got to think of the bigger picture as a medic. So I was a nurse, but you have to think of the, the pharmacy and the supply. So in South Sudan, it would take us eight months to get medication in. So if I don't follow the guidelines and use the first choice drugs, which the order has been made on, I can rupture, have no drugs and then treat no patients. So I don't think it is about being resource limited. It's about understanding the resources you have, why you have them and how to use them. Mm -hmm. so it's, it's like, I'm sorry, I've kind of flipped that around, but like, that's what I, I think it's about. And, and you can just get so much done. And also you're teaching something sustainable so you're not bringing in huge amounts of equipment and technology that need to be regularly checked and have really experienced staff and a continuous supply of electricity. You know, you're bringing in something that hopefully when you leave can continue. And for me, that's, that's what it's all about. Uh, so Josie, almost the, the, the winds are almost so much bigger because you're drilling down into those basic concepts. Yeah, mm. fantastic. Erin, from your perspective. I think it's also about um, prioritizing what's realistic that you can do in the setting that you're in. So I, I was taught actually when I was in Antwerp, uh, we had this amazing professor um, and he sort of taught us this different approach to thinking about things. And it was almost like within your differential diagnosis, don't think of it as a list. Think of it as two circles. And the things that are within the inner circle are the things that A, are the most important things not to miss because they're pathologies that A, you can treat and you can diagnose and you can manage where you are or they're the things that are the most important because they'll kill you more quickly or they'll cause much more morbidity. The things that are in the outer circle may still cause morbidity and mortality and be significant to the patients, but they're not possible to uh, test for or even treat in the environment that you're in. So an example would be, um, let's say uh, types of cancer, for instance. Unfortunately, in many of the places we work, there simply isn't the setup to do good quality oncology and or palliative care services uh, for those patients. But, you know, things like HIV, a lot of the infectious diseases, even some of the more common things that we get everywhere in the world, like diabetes and heart disease. Those are things that we can diagnose and we can treat. So you don't want to miss those things in your diagnosis. So that it's just a different perspective, a different way of thinking about it. And I think the other thing is about having a bit of flexibility also and uh, and really broader like like Josie said having a broader overview of of the the goals of the program and, and what you're going to do so one example is that we ran out because of the international order uh you know taking so long to come into central african republic when i was in bongi um we started to run out of sterile swabs now this was a trauma center and you need sterile swabs and we had a lot of big wounds and a lot of big burns but 
We also had a huge amount still of um, abdominal compresses, which were sterile. So we were able to use those in the meantime, and then also start sterilizing some non-sterile things using the autoclave. So you can do things to kind of tide you over in the meantime. Um, and then the other thing about poor resources is just about, you have to really just plan things. So don't be doing all the tests on all the people. I think the tendency in the UK is that we, we work in a very defensive way. And this is also true in many other places where you do full blood count and use and ease on every single patient that comes in the door, pretty much, right? And you, you just can't do that in these places. So it's really think about, does this test mean something to me? Is the result gonna change my diagnosis or is it gonna change my management? And only in those circumstances should those tests be really done. And that way you can really focalize the resources that you have on the, in, the, in the way that you need it most. That's fantastic, actually. And like you said, just truly drill down into is this test and or diag uh, diagnostic machine going to really alter my treatment pathway, which I think is I think sometimes we over test sometimes. And uh, interestingly enough, a lot of it doesn't necessarily need to lead to a different clinical decision and or and, mm -hmm. and or intervention. So that's I think that's that maybe nice to know, but that's about it. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to pivot slightly and look at a different uh, a, a different angle. And um, so to to Erin first, just can you just give us an example of when you've been put into an extremely challenging situation within within probably without uh, outside of your comfort zone on mission um, and how you've how you've navigated it and or dealt with it. I think there's a lot of examples, unfortunately. <laughs> um, I think one of the ones that will always stay with me is where I know that a decision that I made definitely, and it wasn't entirely with me, but it is sometimes you're limited and we are talking about limited resources. I think at the time it was my first mission. I was in Haiti. Um, I didn't know what was possible and maybe I wasn't in a position where I was experienced enough to ask the right questions and to really kind of put my foot down and say, no, we, we can definitely do something here. So I got a call. It was like two o'clock in the morning. It woke me up and it was from our project coordinator who's non-medical saying to me that there was a, a man at the gate with two children with major burns and they insisted that they wanted to come in and get treatment. But she was aware from the feedback I'd given her that day that our burn unit was at maximum capacity. And so I said to her, I'm really sorry, but we can't accept these kids. You know, we've got 32 beds, they're all full. We are, at, you know, already at maximum capacity. And it, we, if we brought in more patients, my thinking was if we bring in more patients and that will have an impact on the quality of care that we're delivering to the patients we have already, because it would overwhelm the nursing staff and it would overwhelm the, the system because of the material that we had. And I think I was trying to have a sort of global view. And then the next day, this man came back again with only one child because the second child had died overnight. And knowing that, I mean, it's just, it's just the most horrible thing because you think actually in hindsight, so maybe they would have died anyway, but that's not the point because we ended up making a place for the other boy in our sort of general trauma intensive care. So he wasn't even in the burn unit. And he died 24 hours later with, um, because he had really big burns and he had inhalation injury as well. So it was a really complex case. Um, both of the kids had been sleeping under a mosquito net and the mosquito net caught fire and the whole house had been on in fire. So, you know, the, the chances of them surviving this anyway were low, but had we taken them in the first place when it was the acute burn and we'd properly resuscitated them, I don't know if they would have survived. We didn't have a way to intubate patients and ventilate them anyway. So, you know, it's hard to know, but that's, that's something that's really difficult because again, I was very, I was really pretty junior on my first mission. And this is why I advocate for people maybe having a bit more experience before they go. Um, 
because I learned on the job a lot, but that's maybe at the expense of other people and the, the patient care that I was able to deliver. Now, obviously, I debriefed a lot about this with my team and they said, you know, look, maybe we would have made the same decision in your place because ultimately, you know, you were right. We don't want to have an impact on the patient care that's there, but that's really hard to know. And hindsight is a beautiful thing. Josie, from your perspective. Yeah, I think, like Erin said, unfortunately, it, it occurs a lot um, that you'll put outside your comfort zone. But I think that's also part, part of, of why we're there. Um, because the highs are really hot, live, high, but the lows are really low. And, um, and my, ex my experience, my, mine is similar. It was my first mission in Haiti and I'd stay late, stayed late to help, um, to help unload the, the medical stock and our supply to know what I could put in our pharmacy. And we were running a pediatric hospital. I'm an adult nurse and one of the, um, one of the children crashed and, they called me in to resuscitate. And I was like, this is, this is fine, but we've got two Haitian doctors here who are very well qualified. And I was like, this is fine. So, you know, I'm, I'm assisting with the resuscitation. I have no problems with this until they turn to me and say, right, we've been resuscitating a long time. And they say, right, Josie, you have to make the call. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry. And they were like, you have to decide when we stop resuscitating. And I was just like, but I, I, I'm a nurse, you know, you know, you're a doctor. And they turned to me and said, but we're in this room with, full, of, full of Haitian patients and Haitian doctors and you're the white person. And I was just like, whoa. And they were like, so you're, you're, you're the authority and we need you to do it because also there's an implication that these family members might get upset with the Haitian doctors for making the decision where they're less likely to get upset with me. But you know, this was completely, I was just like, I, 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 I don't even know where to start. You know, one, this is like the first time I'd ever resuscitated a child, you know, like, and, and then I was suddenly in charge of, of making that call. Um, and I remember like, luckily I had a really good team and I, I just got on the phone and, and said, you know, you guys need to, you need to talk me through this. Like, and, and we went on way too long. I think we resuscitated the child for over an hour because I, I wasn't ready. Um, and then in the end, um, my colleagues called me and were like, you, ha you have to stop now. And so I did. But like, you're completely like, I was just like, right, that's it. And I think like with Erin, you suddenly are like, right, that's it. I'm never, I'm never feeling that way again. Right. Okay. So then, then you really are like, right. Okay. So how do we stop this from happening? And that's your approach to everything. And then you start seeing things before they even happen. And you're like, mm -hmm. right. Okay. I'm, if I, if that situation occurs, I'm not going to be happy with it. Or okay, we've just been in the situation, but if I was on my own, I wouldn't be happy. So I need to know who I can call, when I can call, what resources we have. And so you, you kind of, yeah, you are thrown in the deep end. Um, and, you know, and, and like Erin, I think about, you know, whether if one of the doctors had been there and not me, they would have done a better job. But like Erin said, it's the reflection that gets you. It's, mm -hmm. The incident is shit, but you're, you're, you're in it, so you're doing it. It's the reflection of it that really affects you. I think it's what you do with those experiences though that really makes them count in a way that, you know, if you can take that awful thing that happened and you learn from it in some way and you can turn that negative into a positive and it's really cheesy, but I think that that's the only way that you can come out of that with a, with a perspective that's not damaging for you. You know, to say that um, 
and, and also you know for your future practice where you know you're not haunted by these things that have happened yeah. and you can move forward from that and you can move on from that and say okay well this is a situation I was in before and actually in hindsight maybe there's different ways we could have tackled that okay well that's the way that we'll do it if I'm ever faced with a situation like this again you know we'll pull out the stops hook or crook we'll figure something out or we'll make sure that there's a dedicated team leader in place that yeah. makes these decisions you know and that we can rationalize this or that there's a referral pathway set up that we know that if we are at the maximum capacity we have a backup plan and, and so on and so on for all the different scenarios you can think of um it's hard to plan and i said already you know oh yes learn to expect the unexpected and of course yeah there's there's a degree of that but you can't prepare for everything and so of course there's going to be moments when you are like super super challenged completely out of your comfort zone and you make mistakes mm. and and that's part of it's part of the work we do and that's not just in humanitarian that's also in the nhs or whatever healthcare setting you work in people mm. do make mistakes it does happen and and certainly you know i'm not perfect and the organization i work for as much as i completely love msf and i think it's a brilliant organization we're not perfect and we make mistakes as an organization as well but as long as you can take those events and you can learn from them then you turn those things into positive experiences in some way and and you know that you can move forward and do better next time Gosh, those are two really profound examples, actually. And um, like you said, a real departure from comfort zone um, in, in both, both cases, actually. Um, thanks for sharing those, guys. So just to, just to pan back a bit, because I think a lot of people listening to this, either on Zoom and or Facebook Live, may have a, have a baseline of NHS work, uh, understandably so. Um, what is it like, from your guys' perspective, Josie, to you first, uh, work for one of these large NGOs. Um, if you if you've got a baseline of of the NHS, is it is it any which way similar, or is there a lot of um, deviation from norm? Well, I mean, first of all, it's amazing. Hence, why Erin and I do it. <laughs> <laughs> Best job in the world. Um, <laughs> but um, I think what what I love most is having a voice and being heard and being able to make changes. So I always loved having like my nursing team um, and, and kind of a ward or a hospital or mobile clinics and like arriving and just kind of setting up with the team and just being like, right guys, what's working? What's not? What do you think we should do? Right, let's crack on. And, it, and, it's, and it's that that you just don't have. And I mean, even though you have limited resources and there's not always a lot you can do, it's great because you just, you just push for it and, and you keep trying and working with that team that you know, from a completely different culture and background with com completely different um, kind of thoughts on medicine and illnesses and community. Like, it's so wonderful to learn from them. And literally all you are is kind of like a, a guide to help them move in the right direction. You know, I don't, I don't have the answers. It's all about getting the answers from them. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, a, a hospital is a hospital anywhere. So, you know, the beds and the wards and, and all that kind of stuff is the same so you have that familiar setting that makes you feel comfortable um but yeah i think the difference that makes it for me is is that voice and being able to really watch people develop um and and gain skills that i suppose i i didn't have because i was too junior in the nhs when i was in it to, to do that so i'm sure people in the nhs do get to do that <laughs> but not me erin <laughs> from your perspective I think, I think, you know, there's obviously huge differences. One of them is the, the kind of exotic places that you're working in, you know, um, it's, it's definitely more exotic being in Gaza than it is being in Glasgow. 
Um, Great. I'm in Glasgow. <laughs> Great. I love Glasgow. Don't get me wrong. Love Glasgow. Um, it's just not quite as exotic. There's no, no mosque right. in Glasgow waking up at four o'clock in the morning. Um, thank goodness. <laughs> um, no, but um, I think I think from the from the perspective of I think the typology of patients that you get is very interesting because certainly if I look at the patients I have here, I have seen more big, complex, insane burn injuries in the four and a half months I've been here and also the six months I spent in Haiti uh, in a burns unit than I think most burn specialists in the UK will see in probably their whole career. Um, so, you know, it does give you a sense of experience and, uh, and, some, and a knowledge base that you're not going to get in a sort of more rich or developed setting just because the types of injuries are different. We are dealing here also with the aftermath of the Great March of Return still. So even though that started two years ago, we have patients who have the most horrendous complex limb injuries. So I saw there was an orthopedic surgeon registrar on, shout out to you, because we definitely have ongoing surgical orthopedic needs in this country that are massive um, and they're incredibly difficult injuries to deal with because we don't have access to all the same kit and equipment that you guys might have and you've got patients running around with external fixators on for two years and and these patients are very politicized which makes them complex to deal with on top of their injuries because there's also multiple actors um, looking to get involved with the patient care which makes it complex on top of the fact that the patients themselves do what we call doctor shopping, where they go around different organizations like health ministry, different hospitals and so on. So it just makes them very challenging to deal with. And then, and then of course, there's the whole, all the issues around pain management and um, the sort of psychological support that they need for a lot of them, because, you know, many of them uh, maybe weren't entirely psychologically healthy before they went to demonstrate, to go and be shot at, at the wall. I mean, you have to have a certain something going on. I mean, it's very, I know I'm talking about things that are very sensitive, so I want to be a little bit careful, but just they're very interesting patients, I'll say, and they're challenging. And it's just very different from home. Um, same, like in Central African Republic, it was a trauma center with surgical things. So we were seeing barn door surgical problems like acute appendicitis, but also these enormous big, um, you know, uh, horrible peritonitis because of, uh, because of TB. Um, you'd have, you know, you'd have really, really big, big, big um, abscesses from people going and getting injections of different sorts. We were seeing Borrelia ulcer. We were, you know, all sorts of really interesting pathologies. Um, we had a case of neck fasci, necrotizing fasciitis, probably every two weeks. Uh, so, you know, it's it, it really, from a very selfish point of view, it stretches you as a clinician. And you get this wealth of experience that's just phenomenal that you're, you know, you're trying to work through logbooks as a trainee and say tick boxy things and say, oh, I've seen X number of these cases and X number of these cases. Come to the field and you'll see them all in about a month. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So what I'm getting from you guys really is that, you know, yeah, that diversity and undifferentiated, undifferentiated patient, which, which comes and arrives at your doorstep and, and just a frequency of a whole variety of pathology which you you wouldn't necessarily see as regularly or frequently back in back in the uh, in in the UK or or indeed in the NHS um so that's that's fantastic actually and it stretches you but then it, indeed i guess through the challenging times you grow the most as a clinician and it sounds like those challenging times have, have kind of caused a lot of growth in 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 both of you i think we also forgot to mention like the <laughs> the other stuff that's different like 
you all you do is work like I mean, forget to mention <laughs> yeah. those kind of things so it sounds cool you have a cook you have a cleaner you have a driver you have someone who makes your bed does your washing it's amazing and you're like Woo but you know you work 12 13 hour days probably six or you have a walking radius a of 150 meters from the house or a <laughs> clinic that, or a hospital that you work in so you're kind of a bit of a prisoner and imagine you know many of you will have been in quarantine for the last few months imagine that mm. for like six months more like mm -hmm. that's your all the time um and then without not chocolate because be there's not beer yeah. here <laughs> exactly without chocolate without beer like <laughs> without no, good ice cream, quarantine, we no chocolate, good ice cream. beer we're, we're really selling it guys <laughs> <laughs> Uh, one thing I just want to say as well it does I think a lot of people are attracted because it looks very glamorous can I just mm -hmm. say that I do spend a lot of my day at a desk with a computer with a with a smartphone with the phone ringing all the time with various issues from the clinics cropping up and I'm working on doctor's rosters and I'm working on you know a variety of protocols and just like trying to just set up referral pathways and just improving on the communication even just within our little team never mind up the chain to headquarters and to uh, with other organizations that we are collaborating with here so a lot of your job you know as in, a, in the capacity as a kind of managerial post although you are seeing patients and although you are you know doing a lot of maybe you're doing a lot of teaching and training which i have been here it it's, it's maybe not quite as glamorous as what a lot of people think it is so keep in mind that it is also just a job and for a lot of your colleagues like the, you know we work with more than 80 percent of the of our colleagues are going to be employed locally right so it's not a huge expat team um and certainly in gaza i mean the expertise that is here is like nowhere else i've ever worked um they are incredibly well educated and incredibly smart and incredibly skilled so i don't really have a huge amount to teach and train it's more just like there's some specific things that we can improve on so i work on that but yeah the everyday thing it's it's, it's just a job and for them some of them are passionate and they, you know, they're, they're also, they're bought into the humanitarian thing. But for many of them, it's also just, it puts bread on the table and it helps them feed their families. So from a resources point of view, Erin, if someone's looking to, you know, get into humanitarian aid, we've mentioned a few fantastic courses and I'm just about to do some IT ninja stuff and, and try and get that course up on the screen so everyone can see it. But from a resources point of view, um, what would you point people to? Um, if they were looking at some resources to either quickly look at or indeed over a period of time? Um, I think that a, a good go-to place to get some idea about, um, so obviously I'm, I'm talking a lot about MSF. There are lots of organizations out there. Um, it's worth going and looking at their website. They'll have a lot of information. They'll have a contact us area as well, where if you wanted to get some specific information about what kind of baseline are they looking for in terms of the, the types of staff that they want to employ. Um, I think that's important you know for example if you're a paramedic at the moment there's not really much in the way of a role for a paramedic in msf that's that's a role that they still haven't really developed but if you're a physio come on down we're looking for physios you know if you're a surgeon if you're a generalist if you're you know there's lots of different you know medical profiles nurses absolutely um so look at the websites for the organizations and again you know some organizations are much more well established so they've got really great websites they're really tech savvy there's loads of information out there um, so look at that. I would also say that from a skills and courses perspective, you want to make sure that you're as up to date as can be with all your basic life support courses. Certainly if you're employed by the UK, um, they will want you to have updated advanced life support, uh, pediatric life support if it's relevant to your practice, uh, trauma life support and so on. Make sure that that stuff's there. When they, when they get you on a contract, they are not questioning your ability as a medic. 
right? They are already saying, okay, well, from your CV and based on the experience that you say that you have and from your references, we are assuming that you are already medically qualified. So they're looking for all the other stuff that really kind of makes you stand out as a, as a person um, and, and as, a, as, a, as, a, as a potential, um, you know, MSFer or somebody who's going to work with uh, MDM, Doctors of the World, Médecins du Monde, or ICRC, or, um, you know, previously there was Merlin, I think that there's different, I don't know if they exist anymore, but there's lots of different organizations like that, um, UK Med, um, there's, there's loads out there, loads. Yeah, I'd just add um, really that MSF and a lot of other organizations do a lot of blogs. So there's a lot of blogs from the field from both um, kind of international and national staff. And so that gives you a really good perspective. And um, I think, you know, before they used to always be really, really happy blogs, but they're also now outlining like the challenges people face and the struggles they have. And so I think it's really important to look at those at those blogs. Um, and it helps you decide what you want. You've also got to really know yourself. So you need to look into how much security you need. And, you know, are you willing to go to a war zone or would you prefer, you know, not to go and instead, you know, go go to like an earthquake or do you want to be in humanitarian or developmental because they're different. Um, mm -hmm. And so just, you know, you can never get enough information. Just make sure you're taking it from really valid sources. Mm -hmm. That's really good. Thanks, guys, for that. OK, so just looking, uh, just switching um, pace slightly and looking at sort of the, the medical indemnity to practice in different countries. Josie, from your perspective and then coming to Erin, just looking at the medical indemnity, how how have you navigated it as as, as a nurse? Has it been provided by the, the NGO or is, is it different for, for different NGOs? Yeah, well, I've always, from a, from a nursing perspective, I've always had it provided by the NGO. Um, and I was always told whether I could or couldn't um, do clinical care in certain areas. For example, when I was in Ethiopia, Ethiopia uh, um, require you to have a, a work permit. And so therefore I was there in a capacity where I was, I was non-clinical and I was, it was made very clear I wasn't allowed to provide any clinical care to patients. I was only allowed to kind of manage um, and train and, uh, and advise. Um, and so I think you also have to take into account that, you know, we, we, aren't, we aren't there to be hands-on. And, and that's really important. Like a lot of people, like Erin said, glorify it and, you know, are like, yeah, I'm gonna go and, you know, I'm gonna save all these people. And it's just like, actually, no, you're gonna stand back. And if you're not standing back, you'll probably get asked to leave because you're not, you're not gonna be there forever. And you have to think about what you're providing to your team. And so therefore I, I agree with countries that say, no, 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 our staff need to be working or you need a work permit, you know, um, because they are ensuring their health system and the continuation of their health system. So yeah, but indemnity wise, always covered by the NGOs. And um, <laughs> um, if not, told why. Erin, <laughs> from your perspective? Um, same, the, the only, I mean, the, yeah, Definitely the same for the humanitarian organizations. With MSF, you're covered by the organization. Uh, with some of the expedition stuff I've done, I had to get indemnity externally and that was expensive. Uh, and they needed a lot of proof that you were gonna be, that you had the skills to be able to provide the care that you were said you were gonna be providing. They wanted a lot of detail. So just, I mean, I'd say, do your research and, and speak to the different providers if you're not going with a big NGO that will provide it for you because you definitely need to make sure that you're covered. And remember that some places won't necessarily 
the indemnity won't necessarily cover you everywhere and certainly not for every types of patients that you're seeing and so on, especially if you're not actually trained to look after them. Um, the other thing I will mention briefly in that is the ugly beast that is revalidation, which is very relevant for UK doctors who are maybe not finished with their training or who have finished, but have to kind of go through that process of, you know, um, looking at uh, every few years, somebody comes and checks on you and make sure that you're not crazy and or incapable of doing the job that you're trying to do. Um, unfortunately, at the moment, as far as I understand, I know MSF has been working for quite a long time with the GMC to try and become a designated body to be able to do that uh, revalidation process. But as of yet, as far as I understand, they are not. Um, I don't know where the sticking point is because ultimately, you know, we are, we are, you know, doing a lot of things here that um, I think, as I said, you know, you're getting amazing clinical practice here. Um, equally, a lot of the NG, a lot of people who are going while they're still within their training, they may find that um, they can't get the experience with an organisation like MSF count towards their training. Okay. So in my case here, I've had to take out of program, um, and 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 it's not you know anything that will be counted towards my training it means that i have to go back after spending a four and a half months in a purely managerial position i have to go back and tick box a bunch of management boxes um when i go back which is really frustrating and it seems a bit silly but at the moment that that's unfortunately the situation and i with the with the revalidation thing that can be a bit killer um i because i remember coming back from six months in car in bangi and I literally got off the train. I just did my debrief in Paris. I arrived in London. My phone pinged and I looked and there was this email from the GMC saying that my revalidation date was like three weeks later. And I thought, what? How can this be? And I, I phoned them up. And to be fair, the lad on the phone was very friendly. He was very nice. But he, I, I, I ended up in tears in the middle of St Pancras train station yelling at this guy saying are you trying to tell me that the last six months of my life have meant nothing and this poor guy's like well I'm sorry but dems the rules um so I ended up more than any any time in my life ever when I really needed a holiday having to go and locum for that locum work to then be counted towards revalidation which is just bonkers so there's definitely things that need to be looked in the system it I'm sorry it's not indemnity, but I think it's still relevant and it's sort of admin things to think about. Josie, have you got anything to add to that? No. <laughs> I'd already but, added the, the same. I mean, the revalidation is the same for the nurses. It's exactly the same. And MSF are trying, but I think MSF are the only NGO trying. So any NGO you go away with, I think the only one that will count is UK Med. Do they count, Owen? Yeah, so I was just going to say, actually, from a paramedic perspective, um, so UK Med will indemnify you to uh, treat abroad, um, um, I believe. And most of my work with UK Med has been on a teaching and education basis. Um, indeed, most of my work for WHO and in the humanitarian domain has been teaching and education. So it's not been treating patients on the, on, on the front line. Um, from that perspective, like, like to your point earlier, Josie, um, and just really, I would say, wait for three to four years. Uh, really, really um, own your domain of practice. So really become comfortable teaching uh, teaching, or just even practicing as a paramedic. Um, know your weak spots and, and your, your failures. Um, start to improve on things you, you are weak at, such as maybe minor wound care, such as maybe more GP type. Uh, type things almost like either prescribing and or just just the more primary care aspects of the role um, 
look at some of the critical care aspects as well. But I would I didn't start to get involved in humanitarian projects and or education until I was at least five years in. So to Erin's point earlier, I dipped my toe into into um, into expedition work. Really started to become familiar with the expedition work, and it's a it's a almost a nice analog for then going a little bit further out of your comfort zone into the humanitarian uh, domain, which is. In my experience, that bit further out because you're right. You've got more people you you may be responsible for, and there's more people looking looking to you. So I certainly think the the expedition um, environment is a great testing ground uh, for your non-technical skills and or technical skills, and squaring off some of your your weaknesses to to then mm-hmm. to then move into this. Um, UK Med are a great provider. They they take doctors, nurses, paramedics. Um, ICRC also take doctors, nurses and paramedics. Um, I think MSF, and I'm, I'll, I'll pose this to you both actually, I'm not too sure they take paramedics. Mainly because we don't do that. We don't do pre-hospital care. So we, we kind of expect everyone to come to us. Now, ICR, we work with ICRC, who I think mm. like have the paramedics. So in South Sudan, ICRC would fly close to the front line collect the soldiers and, and have the paramedics doing that pre-hospital care to then fly them to us and we do the surgery. Um, and so there is that kind of collaboration there. Um, and am I right in thinking, Erin, you work hand in hand in Gaza with ICRC. Are you, you, you work quite closely with them. We're definitely in the same space. Um, they're, they're, the work they do is, is quite different. There's a lot more, there, there's some engineers working with them. They're doing a lot of wash and Watsan. Um, they have a presence in the emergency department in Al Shifa Hospital, which is the big hospital in Gaza City, and we certainly do get referrals from them for burn patients and uh, sometimes for trauma patients as well, uh, with these kind of awful kind of gunshot wounds and explosive injuries. But we're not seeing a huge amount of acute trauma at the moment, thankfully, because things are relatively calm. Um, that can change within 24 hours, of course. But uh, here because the situation is relatively stable we haven't really had a huge amount of direct involvement um the who have been involved a little bit with uh working at the hospital that's dedicated to be the uh, center where we would take patients if there was a COVID outbreak um which is where we're also trying to you know working with the local government um to try and sort of set up what what would be our response there um and then ocb so the MSF Belgian section, we work quite closely with them because they also look after a small cohort of these trauma osteomyelitis patients, but they've also just started doing pediatric uh, trauma surgery, which is not something we do. The only kids that we treat are burns patients. So we don't really treat the trauma kids, kids with trauma, uh, only with very, very, very few exceptions. So the, you know, there's a lot of overlap. Um, and we certainly do work with each other and we have meetings with each other and there's sort of intersectional and inter-organizational kind of get-togethers where, uh, you know, and, and particularly when it comes to security guidelines as well, people will have different perspectives on security and it even varies within MSF. Um, but there will be meetings together, you know, with some of the people who are responsible for it. They kind of share information and so on across the board too. So that's important. Fantastic. And, and just to everything you guys said around, you know, differentiating your baseline so I think it's prudent to from a paramedic perspective to get that healthy baseline of of what you might um, might hope to achieve in the pre-hospital environment and then be prepared to open your mind and deviate from that baseline um, into into the humanitarian domain but it is good to 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 become comfortable with ceilings of care and then realign your ceiling of care within the within the uh, humanitarian 
domain. So to Josie's point around the bang for the buck around um, around doing the basics well, and then in the inference and you know either training and collaborating to do basics well, and the amount of lives that you can save from embedding some of these these concepts. Um, and then empowering them to go on. So train the trainer courses, get them to, to embed the concepts. Mm. So it's not really dependent on you at all. And you're not mm -hmm. the limiting step, almost the liberating step, really. So you can you can then um, embed or, or, or confirm, you know, because they may have, it may also have had these concepts already in place, but it's more of a confirmatory tool, a quality improvement tool, and then step away and, and, and watch it. Um, Coexist. Right. So my next question, Erin, um, how has COVID for you, how has COVID-19 changed the dynamics in the landscape at the moment? Um, so I'm probably in the only place in the world where we have a population of more than two million where there hasn't been a single case of COVID in the community. Touch wood, that is the current setup. Um, that said, I think that that's because strangely, I mean, it, the thing that probably is the reason that the population here has suffered so much is the thing that's kind of saving them right now. So as you, many of you may or may not know, Gaza is kind of like the world's biggest open air prison. Um, as a result, the population movements into and out of Gaza and also the movement of materials and goods is incredibly limited and restricted. There are two border crossings. One is with Israel and one is with Egypt. The one with Israel is incredibly strictly monitored and it tends to be mostly sort of international NGO staff, maybe some you know, kind of political people that move in and out of there. Um, the one with Egypt is where most people who have been outside of Gaza, who are local Palestinians, tend to move in and out of Gaza. There are certainly, there are, I think there's about 2,000 people camped outside the border on the Egyptian side waiting to come in. And effectively what's happened here is that the government has, ha has set up what we initially were kind of against because it was kind of these very draconian um, sort of quarantine rules. But I think actually in hindsight, these, this is the reason why they've done so well in preventing it here. You have to have a negative PCR test to get in, and then you have to go into uh, three weeks of quarantine. And it's very strict. And then you have to have another test done, which has to be negative before you are released from said quarantine. And the result of this has been that they have had about 60 odd patients test positive since March, who've come over the border, um, of which there's only been one death, and that was an elderly lady with significant comorbidities. And everybody else, as far as we know, has made a good recovery. So it's really, really pretty phenomenal statistics. Now, the impact it's had on us operationally, however, is huge. Um, many of our team here have been here since maybe September, October. They haven't had a break. They haven't been able to get out and have their normal holidays. Some of the people who left for a break back in February went you know, back to the UK or went to France or wherever and then weren't able to come back. Um, our lab, our, our lab uh, microbiologist, she left to go and renew her working permit in Jerusalem and got stuck in Jerusalem for six weeks uh, and eventually ended up on a flight back out and she's now back in Germany. Hopefully we'll get her back into the field again at some point because we're still trying to set up a lab here. But you can see that it's had a huge limiting um, factor on the movement in and out of people. We don't currently have an expat uh, surgeon of any form, so we're waiting for an orthopedic surgeon. When he arrives in mid-July, he's going to have to do his three weeks of quarantine and then join our team. So actually, realistically, when we say people are coming to the field, we know that we have to plan for their arrival and then imagine that they're not going to be operational until about a month after they actually arrive. So that has an impact on the operations and on, on the kind of HR needs in the fields. Um, 
the good thing for us is, as I said, like the staff that we work with locally are so skilled and so good and so organized that we can make the program continue to work pretty efficiently and pretty well despite that. Now, obviously, it's optimal when we have somebody else in and we have the, the support of the expat staff there, but it's not dependent fully on that. So that's a good thing. But I think globally in MSF, it's certainly having huge, huge, huge impact across the board. The one very cool thing that has happened here is that our medical, our medical coordinator, she was um, very, she's, her background is emergency medicine. And she said, look, um, something that's really useful as a point of care test, certainly for COVID, but may also be useful for the program across the board is point of care ultrasound. And using it as a diagnostic tool and using it as, uh, as a way to monitor your patient progression um, because lung focus is actually quite an easy thing to learn. And there's very specific findings that you can see with COVID um, that will help you to sort of determine how sick a patient is. So with the help of a, of a telemedicine focus specialist team based in New York and Barcelona and in Germany, and this, is, this comes down to like teach the trainer. I, I had a girl, one of my team here, she's the only female surgical registrar in the country. She's done all her EFAS stuff. And so with her, because she was already ultrasound skilled, they've trained Sarah and me to do all the focus for lung and cardiac and DVT and soft tissue and everything. And then we've trained 15 members of our staff over uh, about a month and a half period. So they still have to work on their logbooks and it's like a kind of ongoing image review system that we do with these guys. But it's just so cool to have had that. And that, that wouldn't have happened, I think, if it hadn't have been for this. So it's a bit of a weird silver lining, but it's, it's one of the proudest things I've got just now, like as a thing I can leave behind me to say, like these guys now have the kits and have the skills to be able to do something that's going to be really, really making a difference to them in their clinical practice. Uh, briefly, Josie, from your perspective, um, in save save the children what's the how has COVID-19 changed in that respect well I think it's it's having a massive impact and I think unfortunately we're only going to see the humanitarian and developmental um, organizations needed even more I mean so currently um, we are watching health systems collapsing uh, across across the globe um, due to the to the massive impacts and influx of COVID patients. But not only are we seeing that massive collapse of systems, we're seeing people no longer wanting to seek healthcare. So let's say we're actually looking to see what percentage of our population and our, our kind of are no longer seeking healthcare at our facilities. And we're talking about at least a 30% decrease of people wanting to come to facilities because their fear. I mean, we've seen it in the UK, so we're going to see it across the world, which means that you're going to have an even larger increase in those kind of, um, you know, the, 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 the diseases we've been fighting for years to cure, like all, all your polio and your malaria and your diarrhea and your malnutrition. They are just going to explode. And we're going to see so many more deaths because of those, because people aren't coming to the clinics because we've lost the health system and because we've lost our healthcare workforce. I mean, so you know, the, the WHO building blocks are gone. They're absolutely falling apart. And, and so from a global perspective, it's absolutely devastating. But I think also it's, it's an opportunity to, to rebuild. Like the, the NGO world was very vertical. You know, we're gonna do vaccination campaigns. We're gonna do HIV. We need a really horizontal, holistic approach. And we need to look more into what we can do at community level. 
not only for surveillance to stop anything like this ever happening again, but also to be able to treat people. I mean, community healthcare workers have been treating mild diseases like malaria, diarrhea, malnutrition for years. And, and that's how we reach the most vulnerable. And so if we can kind of rebuild in that system, then we would be, we would have a much greater reach than we do now. So although it is like devastating every time I go to a meeting to hear about even fewer people going to the, the health facilities or, or the health facilities no longer being able to run, I really hope that, that out of it, we can, we can develop something that, that reaches those that most need it Absolutely. continuously. Absolutely, Josie. So, I also just think, just sorry, can I just add on to that? Um, I think what you said was really important, Josie, because I think rebuilding a system, but also really, really involving the people that it will have an impact on the most yeah. is really important because I think one of the big faults of the NGO sector is that it tends to be very Western-centric, almost sort of colonial in its approach. And I think that's a big criticism I have of it. Now, it's easy for me to say that sitting here as a white Western female and I'm loving the job I do and I obviously have all these opportunities that I can go and come as I please in a way. But I think that we need to really look at, and I think MSF is in the process of restructuring in many ways and trying to look at how they can kind of really take away that, that perspective and that way of working. But it's definitely going to take a big rethink, I think, on a global level not just for the NGO sectors, but also just on how we can kind of help to strengthen existing health systems and health systems that have completely collapsed. So I'd just like to ask you a few questions that have popped up on the Q&A and in the chat box. So one generic theme is um, from Louise and another person in the Q&A is around language prof uh, proficiency. I can't even say that word, language proficiency. And um, I can't even speak English, never mind a foreign language. Um, so so just from, from speaking a foreign language, in your guys' mind, how how did you navigate that, um, and how proficient do you need to be in that language? I take that. I can take that one. Yeah, um, take so I I learnt French. I quit French as soon as I could at school because I hated languages, um, and so I didn't really I didn't really speak any French. Um, and I actually moved to the French speaking part of Belgium in Liège, and just threw myself in the deep end. Um, and luckily, Belgium thought I was a displaced person and so gave me French lessons every morning for six months for about 15 euros. And then I, I volunteered at the Oxfam shop. And then luckily, I got a job as a blood donation nurse because that way I thought I couldn't at least kill anyone if I misunderstood something. But I think it is about throwing yourself in. You need a level B2 um, for any, any language. That's the international scoring. So you've got A1, A2, B1, B2, C1, C2. If you get yourself to B1, most NGOs will assist you to get to level B2, so they'll send you on a course even before your first mission. Because often the French, or the, whatever language you've learned, is more social than it is medical, so they'll need you to, to learn those things. The other tip I have is I watched ER in French. So actually, if you, if you don't buy DVDs, well, this is how old I am, if you don't buy DVDs, I don't know if they exist anymore, but anyway, <laughs> I bought DVDs in Europe because they have subtitles. So I could watch it in English with French subtitles, in French with English subtitles, or in French with French subtitles. And that really helped. That's fantastic, Josie. Erin, from your perspective, is it is it mainly Arabic speaking where you are? And how do you, how do you navigate that? It is Arabic speaking. Um, I started, I didn't speak any Arabic before I came. I, I mean, I knew a few words. Um, 
I tried starting off with some classes here with a private teacher who is wonderful, but I have to say Arabic is a very, very hard language. And I say that, I mean, humbly, I'm not terrible at languages. I speak fluent French, I speak Dutch and I'm learning Spanish. And so I, I have a bit of a basis there in the sort of Romance languages and Germanic ones, but the Arabic, I find it's, it's difficult. I can make all the sounds, I can make all the noises, but for the, the structure of the language is just very, 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 very difficult. And depending on where you are in the Arab speaking world, the dialects can change so drastically that they don't necessarily understand each other because the words can change quite a lot. Um, so I was starting to learn, and I, to be honest with you, the workload I had here was so much that it wasn't worth continuing with the lessons, unfortunately, because I just didn't have time to study the material and I kept just relearning the same things over and over. So my vocabulary is limited to asking, hello, how are you, where do you live? And talking about my house, my book, my daughter. Um, that said, just being a sponge and being curious about the world, I think I, I've enjoyed like picking up um, you know, with my colleagues and when we were doing the ultrasound as well, learning anatomy with them because they're all talking to each other in Arabic and pointing at livers and kidneys and I'm like, and hearts. I'm like, oh, heart, cub. Okay, I know that word. Great. And I felt very proud of myself for starting to pick up these little things. But yeah, no, you definitely, here we don't need it because the staff we work with all speak at very, very high level English. Um, and if you're in a country where the common language is not, some, you know, the, the English speaking is not something that the staff have or, or French speaking or, or whatever other kind of big common language, then you will tend to work with translators. Mm. Um, so that, you know, when I was in Syria, for example, in the Kurdish area, we, um, we had translators that worked with us. The problem is that sometimes your translators don't necessarily know the medical language. So when you're trying to talk to another medical colleague via a non-medical translator, sometimes you can lose quite a lot of important information because you tend to use sort of medical jargon that the translator doesn't understand. And equally, they don't know how to translate what, the, what their, you know, country fellow medic has said to then explain to you what it is that they wanted. So you can, that, that, that can be a bit tough. So it comes down to, again, you know, getting your communication right and just taking your time being really patient. So just looking um, a little, and um, so Annie Nicole, Nicole's asks around so how you balance work with um, um, an NGO with NHS work so from a formative training program or, and or working for an NGO. So Erin in your, because I know medicine is very prescriptive within sort of training, um, how did you navigate and or not um, sort of fitting humanitarian work within an NHS job? Um, basically by not really going down a typical training path. So there are lots of options and there are lots of ways to do it. Um, so I don't necessarily advocate the way I've done it, but I would say that if you're gonna do it this way, be very organized and collect evidence because that's what the guys in the GMC and the Royal Colleges will all look for to be able to say that you have reached an equivalency. So for example, normally for emergency medicine training in the UK, you have to do your core subjects. So you're kind of three years of core training in anesthetics and ICU in emergency medicine and in acute medicine. So I didn't do that. <laughs> I, I did a, a kind of year and a half or so as a combination of clinical fellow jobs and, and locum posts in mostly acute medicine and emergency medicine after FY2. Um, interspersed with periods of study in Belgium for my tropical medicine and a little bit of um, some courses in expedition medicine and so on as well. And then I did basically uh, a variety of lat posts and clinical fellow posts in specialties that I thought were relevant and important for me to be able to continue developing at, in emergency medicine. 
So um, I think the hardest one for me to get was probably ICU and anesthetics. And it's just about talking to people because there will usually be gaps in rotas that they want to fill. Just try and see if you can get it as a training post. And if you can't, if it's going to be like a fellow job, you're going to be doing the same job as everybody else. Just get people to sign the bits of paper. It's a pain in the bum, but just make sure that you just like keep track of all the stuff that you do. So if you've tubed a patient, get your supervisor, whoever was with you just to say, yep, that was good. You know, and get feedback, just get lots of feedback. Um, you can have uh, your electronic e-portfolio active even if you're not in a training job. And so you can still send people the electronic tickets to fill out and then you can print it out or collect it as a PDF document and then use that. So I use that then to apply for higher specialty training um, when I eventually applied. Um, and so, but it gave me the flexibility to in between do expedition or MSF missions. And this is the only MSF mission I'll probably be able to do during my higher specialty training. So I've taken an out of program experience, I guess. I had to fight tooth and claw for it because the deanery I work with is a little bit, I guess they're still working on trying to be open-minded and flexible and stuff, but it's got to do, I understand, you know, there's pressures on making sure that the road has filled and so on, but I've told them if, if the Royal College of Emergency Medicine has a, a um, you know, has a goal to have this sort of global emergency medicine committee and they want to try and develop themselves as you know really really out there in terms of develop you know working to with other countries to develop really high quality emergency care because trauma is one of the number one things that causes mortality on a global scale i think it's just really um i think it's important then to you know to, to say to them oh look you have to give people opportunities then to to get out there and do this stuff right I basically gave them an argument they couldn't argue with and made them a little bit upset. But um, at the end of the day, they granted me six months and I'm very, very happy that they did. So thank you very much if any of you are listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks, Erin. Uh, so Josie, from a nurse perspective. I mean, I can't really comment. I never went back. <laughs> I hey, just... You, you left the NHS and gave up your job and, and yeah. Yeah, and I've just done... I did MSF missions from 2010 till 2015. Um, I did, and then I did a master's and then I started with British Red Cross, went back to MSF and I'm now with Save the Children. Did you so, keep your nursing registration up throughout, Josie? Yeah. Yes, and yes. And that you'd have to do clinical shifts as well? or So because you're, I'm able to, because my jobs require me to have my nursing, my pin, therefore it counts as nursing, um, but it's not clinical. So for me to go back into the NHS, I'd probably want to brush up on certain things. Um, but because it still revolves around um, healthcare and um, nursing, I'm able to keep my pin. But yeah, I, so and I, I have to still keep my 300 hours, but generally I've always done a mission and they've, they've been happy to count, count those as my hours. Fantastic, fantastic. And again, from a paramedic perspective, it's really difficult. Um, to Erin's point and to Josie's point, you know, navigating a career break is how I've done it before. Um, and it, even now in the current environment, it's it's really around trying to navigate career breaks, really, to, to, to be able to step outside and, and take another take another roll up. Good. Right. So I'm just going to um, change slightly because there's two questions which are very similar. Amy Darwin and an anonymous attendee on Zoom asks, around the difference between an NGO and DFID as a job role. And then Amy asks around sort of the political situation 
and how do how do you keep up to date with political uh, global political uh, global politics really um, and i guess those two are inter inter interlinked because ngos i suppose like to differentiate themselves and stand away from government organizations because there's different political agendas at play but erin from your perspective how does that how does that interplay between so ngos and differed and or the political world Oof, it's a huge question so um i guess different ngos operate differently msf is one of the um key tenets for msf is its impartiality and its neutrality and they are it's very important to the way that we work because it allows us to go into spaces where we are sometimes um treating two different you know different sides of a multifaceted war um, it doesn't always make it easy and it still doesn't necessarily keep us safe but it helps with the safety aspect um, I think it's really important also from a finance point of view like MSF because it's so well established they have also the luxury that they don't depend on any support from government funding so I think back when the uh, refugee crisis was sort of at its height you know with lots of people coming into Europe um, MSF was present and still is, you know, obviously they had the, the ship in the Med uh, picking up people, but they also had a presence in some of the camps um, and some of the islands in Greece. And the European Union offered them a huge amount of money. And effectively, though, it was money with strings attached because they basically wanted them to take this money, but then it, we were going to be dictated to as to how we were going to operate, who we could treat, and then whether or not we could send people forward or whether we would just have to return them back. And of course, we said, okay, well, that's very nice. Thanks for offering us several million, but we're going to say no to that. Now, there's not very many organizations out there that are in the financial position where if they were faced with that kind of a grant, they could say, no, thank you. Uh, we'll do fine without that. Um, so that's one of the strengths that they have. So it's about the, you know, so I, I can't say that it's, it's not about the money, but that does come into it. When it comes to the politics, yes, the global politics, I think, are really important because it definitely has an impact on the way that you work. Um, you know, there's right now it's very it's very tense because MSF is still in a very precarious position when it comes to having access to Syria, for instance. Um, that was the case when I was there. It was very sensitive. It still is now. So I'm not really able to go into lots of detail about the mission I had then, even though that was in 2017, because it may still have an impact on operations now. Um, you know, down to the way that we access the, the area and how we how we provide care and, and who we're working with on the ground. Um, because unfortunately, no longer are healthcare organizations protected. Um, we've seen increasingly that we've been targets. And even just recently, just a few weeks ago, Dashti Barshi Hospital in Afghanistan was targeted and a number of, um, this was a maternity hospital. And one member of staff died and several were injured and several mothers and babies were also injured in this and, and, and died. And it's, we still don't know who did that. And then, you know, so that that's very fresh. And then Kunduz obviously happened and that was the Americans bombing a hospital that had clear MSF markings on it. And, and despite lots of pressure from the international community that was never really fully investigated and we never really truly got a, a good answer as to what actually happened and why it was targeted. So, you know, we, we try we try and make sure that we stay politically neutral, but sometimes it's also very hard to do that because of this, the context that you work in. Um, and you can be, and, and, and we're critical, you know, we, we also, part of what we do is be outspoken. So that sometimes also has an impact on your neutrality because being neutral 
doesn't necessarily mean sitting back and not talking about things, but it may be a very different position from what the country that you come from, what your government is saying. So this is where the difference comes from, like DFID being the Department for International Development, that's a governmental organization. They have a certain, they will have their own modus operandi, they will have their own reasons for going into a place and doing the things that they do. And it will be very politically linked. With MSF, the goal we have is to provide good quality healthcare to people that need it most, regardless of their political affiliations, regardless of their race, regardless of their religion, regardless of what they eat for breakfast, right? That, that shouldn't matter. So it's that, that's the thing that keeps the organization, I think, having the position that it does and allowing, you know, allowing it to be one of the best organizations that it is and having the reputation that it does. Um, Josie, I know it's a mammoth question, and Erin did fantastic at, at giving that perspective. Just from your perspective, Josie, any, anything to add to that? Um, I would just say that every NGO is, is different, and MSF is very good at doing what it does, but it generally is a band-aid on a broken leg. That's how MSF describes themselves. Yeah. Like, True. So they are not developmental in any shape or form. They are not saying that they are a solution. They will not fix any of the problems they are there for a limited period of time and then they will leave like so it, you really got to to think of it because i completely like msf can do what they do they can go in and out you know in an emergency situation very quickly because they are non-political whereas if you're looking for that kind of developmental aspects like DFID, the british red cross they're all of or the red cross in general or red crescent they're all affiliated with the government's and although that is not necessarily a good thing at times, they're able to influence the policies to ensure that new healthcare systems are neutral and like apolitical. And so like it's 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 for me it's two sides of the coin. Like they they do completely different things, but for for the same reasons, like that they have the same goals. Um, and I think it's key to understand the difference between humanitarian sector and the developmental sector because they are very different ones msf and icrc they're very much a sprint the other one is is a marathon mm. um and like msf enables then developmental organizations to often come in afresh um you know when when they leave and then you know so so they they help each other out regarding keeping mm. up to date with the political situation when you're on a mission you're kept up to date every day. True <laughs> I mean, story. <laughs> like every small detail. I remember uh, when I was in South Sudan, we heard that there had been footprints from the neighboring tribe spotted. We were like, how, what? How do you even know that they weren't your neighbor's footprints? <laughs> like, but as in, you're, you're really kept well up to date most of the time. And if you're anywhere in a security situation and you're not being kept up to date, that's when I'd, you know, See a red flag and say right maybe i'm not feeling so safe and I, I want to go but you are kept up to date yeah we've even got on all of the staff smartphones that we use here there's an app that's been installed on the phone that if you are not smart when you first get it and turn off the red alert thing it's quite scary because it, it sends this horrific alarm like really loud anytime there's any kind of um altercation at the border or any time that there's like you know, not drones, because you hear them all the time, but any time that there's like a rocket fired or a missile fired, whether it's from Israel into Gaza or from Gaza into Israel, like you get this like red alert thing that goes off. 
it it's it's quite perturbing because it kind of really keeps you like okay okay I know that there's something happening but it's it's so at times it can be so frequent and so constant that even when I say to the staff oh there was a lot of activity last night and they're like yeah it happens I mean for them it's like very much an everyday thing so I've kind of just I go by them I use them as my kind of compass for whether or not I should be worried or not and up until now no worries okay but yeah so you definitely get updates <laughs> I'm mindful we've been going for nearly an hour and a half now so I thought I'd just quick fire round um so Erin just really quickly we've got um we've got uh, one of the attendees just asking around did you do the PG certs so the postgraduate certificates the diploma or the masters in Antwerp for the tropical medicine I did the PG cert, um, which is funny because then obviously if you do the London or the Liverpool course, then you end up with a diploma at the end of it. But if you look at the, if you look at the curriculum, the PG cert for Antwerp is basically the same kind of curriculum as the content that you cover for the diploma. It's just that you don't have the same qualification at the end of it. Um, and it was six months, you know, so it's, it's a long PG cert. <laughs> yeah, but it was awesome. It was really, really good. Um, highly recommend it. So Josie, um, just looking at some of the smaller NGOs, um, uh, so one of the attendees has just asked around, uh, we've mentioned some of the big NGOs, um, how do we find some of the smaller NGOs out there and can, do any come to mind for you? Oh, that's really, that's really tough. I think mainly smaller NGOs are developmental um, and you just really need to look kind of almost in country. Um, because because that's where they are so often they're linked to to universities like for example there's a sierra leone project linked with uclh um, and often hospitals will have specific links that's often really good to do because they're linked with those smaller national ngos which are also really good to get involved in um, so i'm afraid i don't have so much information other than that on that if you if you find it if someone finds out let us know <laughs> There is a thing on the Scottish government. Um, so the Scottish government has a historical link with Malawi, especially not only Malawi, but particularly with Malawi. And there's a lot of there's a team mostly based from a from the hospital in Dundee that do a lot of work with developing the emergency services, also primary health care and some of the maternity services there. And that's like a long, long term investment that's been ongoing with exchanges, like with staff going over, spending a few weeks doing some work training, also sending out kit and equipment and so on. I think they tend to mostly take um, consultant level people with them, but um, I think it's something really cool because it's an ongoing thing and it's sort of a mix between, you know, local fundraising that's happening as well as like bigger sort of funding from Scottish government. So, so just to answer a quick question from Beth, um, just she asks, how do you actually break in when every organisation wants experience? Just from my experience, some of the baseline is is for on prerequisites of four years, and I think actually maybe. It, you can do yourself a disservice if you come to this domain with, with, without having that baseline, very similar to critical care. I, I almost don't beget or beguile my experience because it re, you, you have your foundation shaken almost at every juncture. And so I think almost that four years, certainly as a paramedic, is a safeguarding um, um, for, 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 for me because you can establish your baseline, get familiar with the territory and then be prepared to deviate from that baseline but but uh, almost as we say for advanced uh, clinical uh, critical care practitioners um sort of 10 years really is is sometimes a, a good prerequisite to come into critical care because actually you need to have gone through so many different uh, case presentations being really pushed to your limits 
find the end of yourself, as Josie was saying earlier, find your, be comfortable with failure, be comfortable with a lot of palliation. So, uh, so my, my, my answer just really quickly to that, Beth, would be don't make, if, if some of these are safeguards for, 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 for your own benefit, and it's, it's difficult because you want to jump into it, but sometimes those prerequisites can be, can be useful. Can I just add an, if, if the question, I totally understand what you've, what you've said, Owen, and I agree with you 100%. If the question was framed potentially as you need experience in the NGO sector to be able to get a foot in the door to work, that's a different question. And I would say that you can get experience in the volunteer sector in lots of different ways. So what MSF will look for is, uh, in particular, would be, have you had any experience living and working overseas in whatever capacity? Because it shows that you are, you know, maybe a bit comfortable or okay, or you've, you've, you've done that before where you've not just been in, a, in, in your happy wee flat in, I don't know, Camden. Um, and the other things are that there are lots and lots of local charity organizations and NGOs as well within the areas that people live that could be worthwhile looking into getting involved with even just because the one, what they're looking for really is that you can show, you can prove some leadership skills and that show that you have the capacity to be a little bit, you know, think outside the box a bit, be a bit inventive, be a bit flexible with your approach to things. I think that's more, more what it is. So it's not necessarily that you've already got MSF experience to go to MSF because that's bonkers, no. But like me, not really related to the humanitarian world, but a nice segue and it's the same what Owen did is to go and, you know, I did some expedition work and, that kind of stuff, you know, that's an easier world in a way to break into at a slightly more junior level as well, because there's different organizations and outfitters you can go with who will support you. So it's just worth looking at that kind of thing first. And also you might discover that it's not your thing and that's okay. You know, so it's, it's just, it's just good to see that is this really for me? Also, just as a note for people that are stuck in, in, in the country because of COVID, um, MSF are doing stuff in the UK on COVID um, the British Red Cross is doing huge amounts right now for COVID um, for, for people in the UK and Médecins de Monde run clinics for refugee camp for refugee refugees in the UK. Um, and so like all of those things, I'm sorry, it's UK based, but I'm sure in, in all other um, like countries, you can get involved. Yeah, you can get involved, um, you know, on your doorstep. So, so don't, um, don't think you have to go far. That, that also counts as experience. Zara, that hopefully answers some of your question. Hopefully, Beth, that answers your question. And, and thanks for the clarification, Erin. Um, that, that, that was absolutely fantastic, actually. And Zara, um, to your question around, you're a medical student who wants to do some sustainable development and humanitarian work, any internships. But I, um, are you guys familiar with any internships? No, Josie, you're nodding. Yeah, so the... the the British Red Cross and Save the Children International, Save the Children UK, um, they all take um, internships. Um, it's hard to be able to go abroad as a medical student because of the indemnity and, and things like that. But basically, um, you'd be working in the office um, with the health team. So you could specify that you wanted to work with the health teams and you'd be involved in everything that they were doing. And it really opens the door. You meet a lot of people and it's generally a good time. Guys, I'm mindful we've been going for an hour and a half now. Just one final question for you both. And just to really finish on a high, really. Um, so to, to, to you first, Erin, then to Josie. Um, so Erin, just... just um, have you got one example maybe that, that, that just really illustrates how amazing the humanitarian um, sector and or domain can be? 
I think at the moment I'm on a bit of a high. I'm sort of winding down. The end of my mission is coming up. I I fly back um, to Paris on around the 28th, 29th. And I've been getting text messages from my team just saying thanks. And um, not because I've necessarily brought a lot clinically to the table, but just more from the, the teaching and training. And it's a hugely like, and this is super, super like, not egotistical, but like in a selfish way, like it's so self-satisfying in a way to have this, to have known to have made an impact for these guys and for them to be so pleased with like, with the skills, you know, like with the focus training, that's been amazing to do. Um, I think that's a really, really, really big achievement. And it's something that just feels like it's like, it's a warm fuzzy to know that these guys have been also like, yeah, just they've been a really amazing team and I've made some really good friends here. And I think that that's, um, and not, not even amongst the expat staff, but amongst the staff here, I've just learned so much about their culture. This is a place that was completely alien to me. So just that as well, like you get as, as a humanitarian, a little kind of bump up, you get to go places that tourists don't go. And that's really special because there are so many rich and beautiful and amazing parts of the world. And, you know, Donald Trump might call them shithole countries, but I, I would like to differ on that opinion and say that actually there's so many beautiful people and amazing, amazing, amazing people who are just like so open and curious about you and want to learn from you and that you can learn so much from them. That, that for me is just like overall the best thing. Yeah, I think um, it's about the opportunities that no one really sees that the humanitarian sector offers. So Erin and I, you'll notice that we've spoken a few times about few times about patients, but we mainly talk about our national staff. And like, I'm terrible because I call them like my national staff, but that's because, you know, they're my team. I'm really proud of them and who they are and what they do and how they, they do it, you know? So I'm, I'm there for six months and that's my life. They are always there and always working and living through whatever the people they're treating are going through. Like they are the true inspiration. And they I just are. have- They're the real heroes. Yeah, I, they are the humanitarians. That's, we're, yeah. we're nowhere near. And um, I have one very quick story. I'll try and be quick because I know we're overrunning. But basically I had a, a mother um, come in with a malnourished child. And for some reason we could, we could not get this child to gain weight. It was, it was driving both me and her insane, obviously. Um, but I used to go in and we used to do a bit of health promotion. And then I used to come out of the ward and I used to watch and she'd go around and she'd tell all the mothers to cover their pots and wash their hands and wash the children's faces. And, and she got them all in order and it was, it was brilliant. And we couldn't figure out what was wrong with her child. And so our last, our last like attempt um, of, of treatment was to send her to TB village. So we, we actually had a TB village where we had our TB patients because they would have to live there for the period of treatment. So anywhere between three to six months um, when they became sputum negative. And so to ask a mother to do that is, is huge. She'd already been with us four weeks. So we're now saying, can you go over to this village for, for six months? And she just said, yep, yep, that's fine. If it's, if it's what my child needs, I'll do it. And then what I did was whenever I needed to convince another mother to go to TV village, I'd call her and say, would you mind having a word? And she convinced them all because her baby became beautifully fat and podgy and, and recovered really well. But this, but she absolutely inspired me. And I was like, right. At one point I had an influx of patients. I needed a feeding assistant. I asked her to apply. I stepped back from the interviews so that they were impartial. She got the job. So she had a three month job. And then after that, 
a healthcare, a community healthcare worker position came up and she applied and she got the job. And on my last day before I left, she invited me round to her compound and showed me her, her tickles, so her mud hut, so one for sleeping, one for cooking, one for the animals. And she showed me with just great pride that all of this had happened because I'd assisted her to, to get a job and that she was now going to send her children to school because of the money and the independence she had because MSF were there and providing her with a, with a job. And I, I, was, I was just overwhelmed with joy. It had nothing to do with me absolutely nothing to do with me it was all her that was the person she was and the humanitarian sector gave her the organization uh, the, the opportunity and the position to show herself and 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 to 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 kind of come out winning from it and yeah those are the those are the things i love those are my favorite things truly fantastic actually and very personal stories but absolute revelations into how effective the system can be and you as a, a as a clinician so that's that's fantastic from both of you so i'm just going to wrap up there guys because i'm mindful we've been going for an hour and 40 minutes i'd just like to say that we are going to start running wem courses soon uh, so the exhibition medicine courses as a as a um as a real jump off point uh, because we do teach a lot of these non-technical skills that you can that you can then go on go on and use in the humanitarian sector so uh, mm just be uh, if you if you just be mindful and watch the 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 uh, the WEM website and our social media and we'll be putting those courses on again soon um we'll we'll be back to you with more information on that shortly so but just thank you to all the attendees and uh, and or facebook live thank you to you guys you're very thank welcome you. total pleasure can't think of anything i'd rather do on a wednesday night <laughs> <laughs> oh erin wouldn't you love a beer I'll have one waiting oh, for you when you stop. come back. You're so cruel. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll be calling you for a gin when I'm back in Glasgow, babe. Don't worry. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. Socially distanced, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you, guys. So just to just to mention, um, just to everyone who's who's watching now, uh, we'll be back on Friday with our uh, our next and twelfth Webcast Live events into pre-hospital careers uh, with the panel Ollie Nice and Claire Fitchett um, around. Uh, getting an, um, a, onto a, a high-performing team and or critical care job. Um, so do, uh, do tune in Friday at 6 p.m. Uh, where we'll be doing our 12th session. Um, and then we'll be uh, back with Will Duffin next week for our 13th session with Glenn Zimmerman. Thanks again to our panellists, your absolute legends. And we'll be back next time with another uh, Wemcast Live event. So thanks, guys. Awesome. Thanks. Take Thank care. You. Bye.